Tonight's reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 34 at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, and have not fed the sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the, un and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them good pasture and on the, on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. 
and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land, so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Well, Sunday nights, we're in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And tonight, chapter 34, that Sheila read, a wonderful chapter in the Bible. It is one of the key passages that links the Old Testament to the New Testament. Ezekiel 34 is extensively quoted in the New Testament. Let me just read a few verses from John chapter 10. Just listen rather than turn it up. A few verses from John chapter 10. The Lord Jesus speaking. I am, he says, the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, let's pray as we come to this great passage in Ezekiel. Some words from Ezekiel. The Lord says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. Our loving Father, some of us here or listening are lost. Far from you, not in the sheepfold of believers. Will you seek the lost? Tonight, by your Spirit, will you come to them as their shepherd? Will you find them through your Holy Spirit? Some of us here or listening are Christians, would count ourselves as within the sheepfold of believers, but we have strayed far away from you, from our shepherd. And will you bring us back tonight, 
that we might live close to the Lord who is our shepherd. And our Father, teach us all, remind us all what it's like to have the Lord as our shepherd, what it's like to live under his care and protection and his rule. Teach us, most of all, to follow no other leader but him. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the first heading on the inside of the service sheet, keeping our bearings in Ezekiel. I use the word keeping precisely because Andy and Sam have done a brilliant job in getting our bearings in this amazing prophecy. But we need to keep our bearings and understand where this particular chapter 34, this particular bit of the prophecy fits within the whole. Now, Ezekiel, the prophet, God's prophet, is speaking from Babylon. He is speaking from where God's people are living in exile. Ezekiel, along with many other exiles, is living in a shantytown, far away from Jerusalem, far away from Judah, in exile in Babylon, a shanty town beside the Kibar Canal by the waters of Babylon. Now, when we think of the exile in the history of God's people, we immediately think of Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their life and witness in Babylon. Indeed, Ezekiel refers twice to Daniel. He's well known to Ezekiel. But whereas Daniel and his friends were in Nebuchadnezzar's royal court, Ezekiel, along with the vast, vast majority of the exiles, were living in very different surroundings in this shanty town, about as far removed, about as different as it could possibly be from the glorious city of God, Jerusalem, Zion, and the temple and their home. Now, you've got to have that in your minds. There's Ezekiel, God's prophet, in this shanty town by the rivers of Babylon. And all that these people there that he prophesied to could ever think about was the glory of Zion of Jerusalem, their home. Now, the exile began in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. And you read of that in Daniel, and the Lord gave the city and the people into his hand. It's very important that we remember that the Lord brought about the exile. He had a purpose in it. And it was in 605 BC, right at the start of the exile, that Daniel was taken to Babylon as part of a select group of gifted young future leaders. Ezekiel wasn't one of them, and he was taken into exile in Babylon in 597 BC as part of not a small movement of exiles, Daniel and his friends, but part of a massive wave of deportation into Babylon. And very soon after coming into Babylon, Ezekiel began prophesying. And his prophecy, his ministry, remember, was to the exiles, to these people living in this shanty town on the Kibar Canal by the waters of Babylon. He was speaking to God's people as they languished without hope in exile. And he had a tough job. 
People listened to Ezekiel, but they wouldn't take on board what he said. We read that at the end of chapter 33, verse 32. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. There's a great verse. We should start preaching on verses, not chunks. They hear what you say, but they don't do anything about it. That's not, of course, you. And that's true, though, isn't it? We, we hear what the Bible says. But we don't do anything about it. So what was Ezekiel saying to them? His prophecy divides into three chunks. Chapters 1 to 24, God's judgment on Jerusalem. That means God's judgment on his people because they had presumed on their religious identity as God's chosen people and disregarded in so many ways their covenant with God. But why the particular focus in chapters 1 to 24 on the city of Jerusalem in these oracles of judgment? Because the city of Jerusalem is Zion, the city of God, physically showing God's presence with his people and a light to the nations. And of course, it was in the temple of Jerusalem where God was present with his people. Jerusalem, the temple, the land was everything to God's people. Jerusalem, the temple, the land was everything to God. It was how God's glory shone in the world. How much did the city of Jerusalem and all it symbolized mean to the exiles in Babylon? Listen to what they were singing by the rivers of Babylon. Get Abba out of your mind. Some of you here don't know who they are. Thank the Lord for that. By the waters of Babylon. I guess that means in this shanty town on the banks of the Kibar Canal. We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth sing, sing us one of the songs of Jerusalem. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. That's how much Jerusalem meant to the exiles. And Ezekiel, God's prophet, was saying to the exiles in Babylon, God's judgment on you will mean that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. They heard him, but they didn't heed him. God will leave, Ezekiel, God's prophet said, the temple and the city. Now that is unthinkable and devastating to the exiles. So in these first 24 chapters, Ezekiel is trying to wean the exiles off Jerusalem and God's presence there. That's not the future. Don't look to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple for your future, for it will be destroyed. That's chapters 1 to 24. And then in chapters 25 to 33, Ezekiel's prophecy concerns the surrounding nations, particularly Egypt and Tyre. God will judge them too. Now, what's that got to do with the exiles in Babylon? Remember, Ezekiel's prophecy is addressed to the exiles 
in Babylon. And what God is saying to them through his prophet is, don't look to Jerusalem, to the city, to the temple for your future, and don't be taken in or look to the nations around Judah either. Don't be taken in by their prosperity. Don't think that by embracing their culture, you will find your identity and your security. Now, you see what the prophet is doing. There they are, this group of exiles in this shanty town by the rivers of Babylon, surrounded by the glory of Babylon, looking to Egypt on the left and Tyre on the right, and he's saying, don't ever think that's where you will find your security. Now that's, I think, not impossible for them to take on board. What's impossible for them to take on board is don't think that you will find your security in Zion. Now, how do we hear that message? Well, there are differences in our context, for sure, but there are principles that are the same. What happens if the church or major parts of the church presume on her religious identity as God's chosen people, with all the physical and visual manifestations of that, buildings, denominations, all that stuff, what happens if the church presumes on her religious identity and yet breaks their covenant with the Lord, disobeys his word again and again and again with a growing arrogance? What happens? What happens if the church looks to the nation, to the surrounding culture, for her identity and security and future? What happens? Well, according to God's prophecy here, judgment. Could God dismantle a religious institution? Could he empty buildings? Could he take them down brick by brick? Could he do that? Yes. Is he beginning to do that? Will we listen? You see, that's the voice of the prophet. Will we listen? Will we listen? Will we listen to what is the most likely scenario in our country is that God's judgment will come to bear on the church? And where will we look for the future? Look with me at Ezekiel 33, verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, 586 B.C., in the tenth month of the fifth day of the month, I love that little verse. There's another sermon in that little verse. You know, this is historically accurate, isn't it? It's not kind of somewhere around the 6th century. On this particular day, a fugitive came from Jerusalem to me and said, now, just think of these words. Now, they are astonishingly significant. The city has been destroyed. The unthinkable has happened. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple in ruins. What a devastating blow that would have been to the exiles in their shanty town in Babylon. And they would have had no hope. 
Now, Ezekiel didn't relish it or rejoice in it. The fact that he had seen it and said it didn't diminish the blow. God had done it. The city was in ruins and the temple destroyed. Somebody uh, said to me this week that, well, you must be glad because you are out of the context of the declining church in Scotland and you must be glad that you've been proved right. Ezekiel did not relish the fact that his prophecy of God's judgment on Jerusalem came true. And then a glimmer of hope in verse 22 of chapter 33. The hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. Ezekiel had been silent for seven years, not said anything. One of the striking things about Ezekiel and one of the frustrating things about God is the length of time he takes between stuff. Seven years, Ezekiel was dumb. Seven years. And on that terrible day, when Jerusalem was destroyed, God spoke again. Now that brings us to the final chunk of the prophecy, chapters 34 to 48, God's promise of future restoration in this prophecy of a glorious leader for God's people. And you've got to get into the shoes of the people in the shantytown by the rivers of Babylon. There's nothing left. The nations will be judged. The glory of Babylon will go as it did. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is gone. God has left the temple. Now, chapters 34 to 48 are full of the good bits, but there's one more bad bit before we get to the good bits. The first 10 verses of chapter 34 are an indictment against the failed leaders of God's people. And then in 11 to 31, the promise of a glorious leader. The indictment in verses 1 to 10 is against the shepherds of Israel. Read with me verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds of Israel are the leaders of God's people. The particular leaders of God's people Ezekiel is referring to are the kings of Israel and Judah. 500 years of kings, most of whom had not led the people faithfully. God had given the kings the mandate, rule over them under me. Be under shepherds, if you like. And with a few exceptions, they had failed. Even the best of them, David and Solomon, had failed. And the worst of them, well, they were terrible. The failure of leadership. Now, it's striking that at this pivot point, when everything has fallen apart and there is no hope, The last word that God has as to why this happened is the failure of leaders amongst God's people. Right off the back of the news that Jerusalem had been destroyed, they are more culpable than anyone else. What have they done? Well, a shepherd is meant to care for their sheep, to feed them, to protect them. 
particularly the weak and vulnerable among them. Just to say that uh, we always listen to a number of sermons sometime out, God willing, from when we preach them. And all the sermons I listened to were full of stories of little sheep running around in fields. And I think they were preached mostly by people like me who were city preachers who didn't know anything about sheep. But we don't need to get into all that banal nonsense because you understand this image and it's far too serious to make jokes. They're meant to feed them, protect them, particularly the weak. When they stray or are lost, the good shepherd is meant to go and find them. Verse 4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. They have failed on every count. They were more interested in themselves, their power and advancement. The result of their failed leadership, verse 6, my sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth. I think that's probably a reference to God's people in Babylon. Now, it's not difficult to see what's behind this metaphor of shepherd and sheep. They had failed to teach the people the Word of God, or they had failed to teach them the whole truth. I think teaching half-truths is worse than teaching no truth. It's harder to spot. They had failed to keep the people within the covenant. They had failed to seek the lost. There was no servant heart within these shepherds' hearts. They had failed to shepherd as under-shepherds of the Lord. And, and we need to see this. It really, really riled God. It angered Him. Because they're His sheep. Therefore, verse 9, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And God is no less angry now at self-serving failed leadership amongst God's people as he was then. Now, that's the bad bit over, nearly. The promise, verses 11 to 31 Now, these are marvelous verses. Um, You need to work a little harder uh, to get your head around this. Um, Sam and Andy and I have a a tough job. It's just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And we just clutter away here as best we can and leave it to the Holy Spirit to sort out the mess. Uh, Let me try, though. The promise, what dominates these verses? Listen, listen to, listen. Just listen. Listen in the shoes of the exiles in Babylon off the back of the news that Jerusalem and the temple had been burned. And listen in your own shoes as you look out on the bleak state of the people of God, the church in our time. Some of you may have heard on the news this morning that the global Anglican futures movement, which is evangelical Anglicanism in the world, has promised if the Episcopal Church in Scotland becomes the second Anglican church in the world this week to depart radically from orthodoxy on marriage to send a relief bishop to Scotland. That's never happened in any other country in the world in history. So as you look out on that, and the greatest danger is that we don't come to terms with it or think in some way we've moved on from it. We haven't. Listen, 
standing in the shoes of the exiles by the rivers of Babylon, with the temple and the city destroyed, standing in your shoes. Or standing in the shoes of Andy and Sam and their generation who will be the gospel ministers in the next 30 or 40 years. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I, myself, will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them. I will feed them. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will judge. I will rescue. I will judge. And so on and so forth. Fifty-five times, God says, I will be your shepherd. And as you stand in the shoes of the exiles, I guess many of them would be crying and despairing and hopeless. I wonder if when you stand in their shoes and hear these words, I will be your shepherd, I will rescue you, I will save you. You can see their faces being lifted up with Ezekiel's word. There is hope. There is the promise of restoration. The Lord has not abandoned them. The Lord promises to be with them. The Lord promises to rescue them, to protect them, to search for them, and bring them home. And the Lord promises, and there is great comfort in these words, the Lord promises to sift between the sheep and the sheep and the rams, and the goats. He will judge who are the false shepherds, and he will not listen to any excuses. The Lord promises to be the leader they need. You know, it's very striking through salvation history, and even the history of the church in a country, that when things hit rock bottom, the Lord takes control of it all himself again, and he will not have his sheep stray for long from the sheepfold. He will not tolerate his sheep not being fed. You imagine when Sheila was with Agnes in the hospital, and Agnes said, I've read that I might not be a Christian. And Sheila said to her, Oh, Agnes, you are. Everyone, everyone comes to God to glory in the end. How do you think that would have made God feel? How do you think God feels when the gospel is spun and the word of God is spurned? And clear Christians stand up in public gatherings in our country and commend stuff that is wholly uncommendable. God will have his sheep safe. Last Sunday night, we welcomed Donnie and Rachel Campbell into membership. Donnie is our resident professional athlete and my personal trainer. He is an ultra-distance runner. There is a race in the running calendar each year, exactly the kind of race, there you are over there, Donnie and Rachel would do, called the Three Peaks Challenge. 
it is as scary as it sounds. It involves running up or walking up the three highest peaks in England, Wales, and Scotland within 24 hours, and car journeys in between. Scafell Pike in England, 978 meters. Snowdonia in, in Wales, Snowdon in Wales, 1085, and then Ben Nevis. We've got the highest one, 1345. Um, I'm thinking of a group entry from Chalmers. Uh, please chat to me afterwards. Now, three peaks. This is when it gets hard. Old Testament prophecy is like a three peaks race, particularly prophecies around the time of the exile. Prophecies like Ezekiel. I spoke a few minutes ago about the people's heads, their eyes being lifted up to look to God. Keep that image in your minds. Prophecy lifts up our eyes and makes our eyes look forward to the future about God's promises. Peak one, Scafell Pike, if you like, the lowest one. Peak one on the horizon is the end of the exile. It takes you a long time to walk up that mountain, 70 more years. Peak one is the end of the exile, the restoration of God's people as their shepherd. God will bring a faithful remnant back out of the exile. And the walls of the Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. And that's not where the promise ends at that first peak. You see, as soon as you climb that first mountain in the prophecy, the lowest one of the three, out of the mist, out of the mist, only then, though, there emerges another mountain. And that higher mountain has a cross on the top, and there is glory round that cross, the top of the mountain, shining in glory. But there is one more mountain, the last mountain, and that mountain is the most glorious sight. It is so huge, that third mountain fills all your horizon, as if that mountain fills the whole earth. And when you climb that last mountain, there are no more mountains to climb the race is run. The race is won. And that mountain shines with the glory of God, and there is a crown of righteousness for you. Now, all I'm doing is I'm drawing on hundreds of lines of Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament. You see this, the, the, I hope you do, the first mountain peak. So, lift up your eyes, you exiles, singing, mourning by the waters of Babylon. Lift up your eyes. Look, there is a mountain. There is, there is something after the exile. I will be your shepherd. And then there's another mountain with a cross at the top. And then there is a third mountain, the new creation, the everlasting kingdom of God. The third peak is the return of Jesus and the new creation. And each of the mountain peaks of salvation history is greater and more glorious than the peak that preceded it. Now, I guess, think of the exiles again in Babylon. I guess for these exiles by the Kibar Canal in Babylon, most of them would not even live to reach Summit 1. I mean, Daniel didn't get to Summit 1. They would die in Babylon. But of course, if they were believers, if they listened to Ezekiel and took heed of what he said, they will reach the final summit at the end of the age. Now, I could take you, I'd love to take you all over the prophets just to show you how the Bible hits together so wonderfully. These are the last words of the prophecy of Daniel in exile. But go your way till the end, till the final summit, 
and you will rest and will rise and you will stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Think of the Great Commission in Matthew. I will be with you until the end of the days. In Ezekiel 34, though, there is only an implicit reference to Pete 1. Scaffell Pike doesn't get a look in. Because God wants to point them to Snowden and to Ben Nevis. He wants to point them to something wonderful down the track. And I suspect they would have had no idea what they were hearing. Verses 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, that isn't David the king. He lived hundreds of years before. But the exiles, with nothing to look forward to, Jerusalem in ruins, the temple destroyed, and all the enticement of the surrounding nations warned against that, they would know what that meant. It meant David the king's greater son. That's the second mountain. How will the Lord be their shepherd? He will come from the glory of heaven into this squalid world and make his dwelling among men and live with us and feed us and protect us and seek us and die for us. The shepherd care of God for his people back in the days of the exile brought hope for the future. But when Jesus came, when the shepherd came, God loved us with a depth that he gave his son for us and we were forgiven. Just dwell on that for a minute. I have two sons. I would not give up either of them for anything. God gave his son. And he is your shepherd. And he did it for you. I am the good shepherd. He said. I lay down my life for the sheep. I know my sheep. The good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, laid down his life for us that we might be elect in our exilic status. That's one Peter. Now, I hope this illustrates to you, and time runs on, but this is just great. I hope you agree. You see, the more we dig out of the Bible, the more rich it is. It's what Peter meant when he said, to you elect exiles. Now, we're on the last leg of the Three Peaks race. Donnie is in the lead. I'm second. I'm not going to reach the summit, though, and he's going to wait for me. The final summit is in view, the glory of the new creation where we will live with the shepherd king forever. That's what Ezekiel is speaking about in verses 25 to 31. You see, he's not wanting these exiles languishing in Babylon to be that concerned with summit one. He wants them to see Snowden, and he wants them to see the mighty Ben Nevis towering up above the mist. I will make, verse 25, a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. You know, there are no wolves in the new creation. That's what he means. 
And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down showers in their season. And they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall bear their fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure. If you're thinking of Genesis chapter 1 or Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you're spot on. That's where we are in this prophecy. Eden restored. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land. Genesis 1, Revelation 21. They shall know, Revelation 21, verse 6, that I am the Lord their God with them. It's exactly what it is. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And then these wonderful words, you are my sheep. And I will take you up summit one. And I will take you to the glory of the cross at the top of summit two. And I will take you home where all there will be is Jesus, your shepherd and you. Now, let me finish with three personal applications of this. First, to any under shepherds who are here. That's uh, me or elders or any aspiring under shepherds. That's Sam and some of you who will be elders or ministers. Andy is, well, he is an under shepherd now. We might add bishops, archbishops, moderators, and all the rest of it. Remember the indictment against the failed shepherds of Israel at the beginning of the chapter. How does God view under shepherds in the church who are out for themselves and not the sheep, who will not feed the sheep, who will not care for the sheep, who will not seek them when they are lost? God is so patient. But then all of a sudden his arm of judgment will fall. He will judge them. Sam mentioned this morning the privilege afforded to ministers to shepherd God's people is high, so high. What an astonishing privilege it is for Sheila to be able to lead Agnes to Jesus. What an astonishing privilege it is for me to tell her story. But the under-shepherds are called with great privilege to great responsibility and with a very real accountability. And the accountability is before Jesus the chief shepherd, king and judge. Second, a word to the sheep. Now, that's you if you are a Christian. If Jesus is your Savior and the Lord and he has rescued you, you're a sheep. It is a helpful image, really, isn't it? We're not sort of like a sophisticated animal. We're like sheep. It's very simple, isn't it? What, is, what gets a sheep through the day when they see the shepherd come? If you are a sheep, to whom are you looking for leadership? Do not look to an under-shepherd. Look to the shepherd himself. Look to Jesus. If you look anywhere else for the Lord of your life, you will never become like the shepherd. Live your life with Jesus by your side. And if you are going to look to an under-shepherd, make sure you look to one who will help you to look to Jesus. 
Maybe as one of the shepherd's sheep tonight, you are hurting. There must be, I know there are, I'm not going to look at you, some of the shepherd's sheep here who are really hurting. But remember that the Lord Jesus is your shepherd. He will never, ever leave you. He will never, ever forsake you. Maybe as one of the shepherd's sheep, you are under spiritual attack. Maybe you are wrestling with temptation. Turn to the shepherd. Ask for his help. Trust him to protect you. Maybe you've strayed from the shepherd. You're far from him. And yet, by some circumstance, you're sitting here tonight. And Jesus, your shepherd, is here by his Spirit. What is he doing if you are far from him? How many of us in this room? 100. 99 people are not far from the shepherd. One of you is. What is the shepherd by his Spirit doing in this room? He is searching for you, not for the 99. And if that's you, and you feel your heart strangely warmed or your head convicted that he is searching you and calling you back, do not let him go. And finally, a word to any would-be sheep. In John 10, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, that they will listen to my voice. So there may be one flock, one shepherd. I wonder if anyone here or listening online, I know some of you online, you communicate with me, and you might be the people God is calling into his sheepfold tonight. I wonder if that is you. Is the shepherd calling your name? Will you come into the arms of the safety of the shepherd? Because if the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul He guides me in straight paths. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Not this table. This table enables us through what it represents to become sheep of the shepherd. But in the great shepherd, Sam, the table that you prepare before me in the presence of my enemies is a table of feasting. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I've gloriously messed up tonight, taking you from one end of the Bible to the other. And I hope you can grasp something of the astonishing grace of God 
who will not let you out of his hand. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us understand these things. The wonderful promises of God, these mountain peaks of prophecy. We look back to two of them. The end of the exile, the glory of the cross. And it is glorious, the cross, because... It is a wonderful bridge that it builds. And it was followed by resurrection. And we're in that long dark valley. Before we climb the final mountain. And as we stand in our shoes in this country today. It seems like. The judgment of God is upon us, and we can well understand why. And yet, in this nation, you have a burning, burning desire to protect your sheep and to build your church. And then one day, and there are moments perhaps like this, when we would long for that day to come. The day when we stand on the mountain summit, the new Jerusalem, and there are no more mountains to climb, and the showers of blessing will fall on us forevermore. Lord, if there are any here who are not yet in your sheepfold, will you Seek and save them as we come to the Lord's table. If we have drifted from the shepherd, bring us back and help us all to look to Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. And for a moment, Lord, we pray that the things of earth will grow dim in the light of of the glorious grace of our leader and king and shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love with all our hearts and whom we long to serve. For his sake. Amen.